two ways you can go on this job. My way or the highway. Money points ever. From the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, this is the 90.7 Movie Talk Show. I'm Corey Kraft. And I'm Ben Flanagan, and joining us on the phone today will be the frequent guests on this show, Ben Stark, Matt Scalici, and my brother, Graham Flanagan, to finally put an end to the bottomless pit of the 2009 film year discussion. We'll all give you our picks for best movies, performances, scenes, and uses of music from last year. But we begin today with some sad news about the long-standing television show At The Movies, uh, formerly popularized by Gene Siskel and Roger Eber, and, and you saw it in later incarnations with Eber and Roper, uh, Ben Lyons and Ben Mankiewicz, and most recently, Michael Phillips of the Chicago Tribune and A.O. Scott of the New York Times. Disney ABC Domestic Television, which distributes At The Movies and ABC Media Productions, which produces it, said in a statement that the current version of the show will broadcast its last original episode the weekend of August 14th. And this kind of comes on the heels of an ongoing debate over the current status of pop culture criticism uh, out there in the blogosphere uh, and its relevance among today's audiences. And now we're joined by my brother Graham from New York City. And Graham, like me, used to watch those incarnations of At The Movies, whether it was hosted by Siskel, Ebert, Roper, or anybody else. And as movie lovers, we were just happy to see a 30-minute television show dedicated to spirited film discussion, which we really never saw anywhere else except for maybe on uh, sneak previews with Jeffrey Lyons and Michael Medved on PBS. Now, Graham, uh, Disney said the following about the show in its statement earlier this week. They said, from a business perspective, it became clear this weekly half-hour broadcast syndication series was just no longer sustainable. Now, let's not play dumb here and pretend two academics who look almost exactly alike blabbering about movies is still a marketable pro product to today's audience. Graham, isn't, this, uh, isn't the version of At The Movies we learned to love, um, we did learn to love it, but doesn't the official into it kind of dishearten you a little bit? Yeah, it is disheartening, for sure. Um, but... I think that uh, the show will return. Uh, I think that there's still an audience for this show, and I think it will return at some point. Uh, maybe you're right about the... Maybe it is the combination of the two critics, uh, Phillips and Scott, wasn't clicking uh, for the network or for the audiences. Um, but I, you know, I think both of those guys are really smart, but um, maybe didn't have a connection with the audience in the way that uh, Siskel and Ebert did, but the show will come back, and uh, people want the show to come back. Graham, uh, what do you think finally did in at the movies? Do you think it's uh, some combination, as, as a lot of bloggers seem to think, of, of the, the lack of an authoritative voice on the show for so long, along with the lessening, I think, of the critical voice uh, in the public's regard? Well, I mean, you know, with School and Ebert, you had a brand. I think the brand is, is what's most important here. Um, and here you've just got at the movies with this guy and that guy, you, you know. Do we lose Graham? A little bit. Yeah, Graham, we're going to have to get you back on the line here in a second, so go ahead and call us back. But, uh, Corey, um, I was... 
I'm disappointed by this, but mm-hmm. I understand. You know, it isn't a marketable um, product where you've got these two guys. Yes, they are real critics, unlike the the previous Jokers, Mankiewicz and Lyons, who took over for Ebert and Roper. Boy, was that a disaster. It was a disaster. It was just a bad idea, number one, uh, to get guys who wanted to be celebrities and wanted to hang out with celebrities and put them on uh, a network and have them talk, uh, quote-unquote, seriously about good and bad movies. And as we get Graham back on the line, let's see what we can do here. Graham, you with us again? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, yeah, we had that. A little, that. a little New York static. But Graham, we were talking about um, whether or not the show was still marketable in a way uh, where you had these two guys who were serious film critics, but guys we didn't really know like we did. Like you said, Ebert, Siskel right. and Ebert were a brand, and even Ebert and Roper managed to pull it off there for a while. They had a nice run before Ebert unfortunately had his... Um, bouts with cancer uh, that we've heard a lot about lately but when you have these guys like Ben Lyons and Ben Mankiewicz who just couldn't get the job done uh, there had to be an answer and I thought that they uh, answered it to an extent by hiring Phillips and Scott you know you had these guys who a lot of people took seriously or at least uh, relatively uh, when you're comparing them to Lyons and Mankiewicz when they were hired did you think that was a good move? Well on paper yes but when you talk about TV, you want you want passion and you want a, somebody that the audience can connect with. And I think with for years, what what uh, drew people to the Cisco and Ebert show was the dynamic between the two of those guys. They were obviously friends and colleagues, but they weren't afraid to go at it with each other and call each other out. And you didn't get that as much with Phyllis and Scott. It was more of just a polite uh, discourse. Yeah. And I think people want conflict. Yeah, and they had uh, very little, I guess, what you would call chemistry. And, I, you know, I don't really like that word when you're talking about, you know, who works together on television and stuff. But in a way, it does work. Siskel and Yeager were natural. Um, and, you know, you just kind of you just kind of rolled with it. You enjoyed watching them argue, and you, you knew that they were friends and, you know, that they would probably buy each other beers afterwards <laughs> or, or whatever, or go to a Bulls game. Uh, but, you know, look, I'm sad it's over, but I do think that, um, like Graham said, I think we will see another version of this show. If it's not at the movies, oh, well, I'm kind of okay with it not being that since Siskel and Ebert are no longer the hosts, or at least Ebert, you know, even if it did work with Roper, who Corey looks uh, eerily uh, like. Oh, don't put that uh, on me. To an Come extent, on. you've got... You've got um, Richard Roper in the booth with me right now, and oh I hate God. and I hate it, and I actually didn't mind the guy. But Salavi, <laughs> let's move on. We'll we'll see we'll see good uh, critical discourse on television in the future. Uh, we hope, but let's move on to the meat of the show and get into our best of 2009. And Corey, it's it's almost April, uh, but this isn't unusual. I think if you if you can hit it before April hits uh, and offer out your your best of the year, I think you're okay. Uh, and we don't live in New York City like Graham does, uh, or in Los Angeles. We live in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, where uh, we don't get these movies during their first theatrical run. So we've got to wait for DVD or drive uh, to Birmingham or Atlanta or Austin, uh, or <laughs> like Corey did recently. Uh, and we've got to wait to compile our list. We don't just want to throw you know, all the mainstream fare that we see during the summertime and whatever happens to come to Tuscaloosa on our list. We want to, we want to be fair and uh, see the best of the best and see how it measures up. So, uh, Graham, let's start off by getting your top 
five or ten or whatever whatever you compiled uh, for today. And this is movies, and we're going to move forward and talk about your top five performances as well as ours, and that's going to include male and female. But Graham, go ahead and start us off with your top five to ten movies of 2009. Okay, um, number five for me was Inglorious Bastards, which kind of speaks for itself. Uh, just a technical marvel, uh, a very unique screenplay with incredible performances throughout. Number four, Serious Man. Uh, what, what I said about Inglorious Bastards kind of goes for a serious man as well. Um, one of the most original and, and refreshing movies that the Coen brothers have given us in a long time. Um, number three, Precious. Uh, just a totally unique piece of work from a young director, uh, young in terms of his filmography anyway, uh, with, with again, a, a breakthrough performance from uh, its lead, Gabourey Sidibe, excuse me, who I think should have won the Oscar, uh, as well as Monique, who definitely deserved uh, her, her Oscar for her work. Uh, you know, the, the movie is uh, carried by its performances, but also by very strong filmmaking, and I hope that Lee Daniels uh, tops himself with his with his work in the future. Okay, so my first three, uh, number five, four, and three were uh, all nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars. Number two and number one were not. Number two for me is Drag Me to Hell, Sam Raimi's uh, horror horror film that came out in the summer. Well, you know, a lot of people will scoff at this choice, but I think it is a pure cinematic experience. It is hilarious, it is frightening, it is disgusting, and I did not feel bad about it at the end. It wasn't a kind of it wasn't a guilty pleasure. I just thought it was masterful filmmaking all around. Uh, the sound design, the editing, everything came together to make this just a pure movie experience. And I treasured it and I thought it was great. Uh, and I think wasn't it on somebody else, like maybe Tarantino or somebody's uh, top ten list. Uh yeah I, I don't know it might have been it doesn't surprise it me yeah. look I, so I look, when I heard I heard that and I, was, I said you know what thank you <laughs> it might be on somebody else's oh uh, really before the show is over <laughs> yeah well, we might we might talk about that later uh so Graham uh, but, but yeah I, I love Drag Me to Hell I think it's interesting that um Ellen Page was hired to star in the movie coming off of Juno but had to get, uh, drop out at the last minute and they brought on Allison Lohman. Um, who did an excellent job, and hopefully she'll get uh, another gig based off of this that'll be uh, just as strong. Um, number one for me was, as some of you might already know, Robert Zemeckis' Disney's A Christmas Carol, starring Jim Carrey as Ebenezer Scrooge, this uh, 3D motion capture CGI gem that I think uh, is a testament to really, and you know, this might sound a little pretentious, but a movie like this reminds me of why we have movies in the first place, because you take a great classic work of literature like Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, and you say, you know what, let's tell this story in the best way that we can, and let's, let's tell it using the best technology that we have. And they, they brought together the story, uh, basically a totally faithful adaptation of the original text, and they combined that with cutting-edge, 3D motion capture technology, and what resulted was just, again, I keep saying this all day, a wonderful experience. 
Jim Carrey, I think, does some of the best work of his career. I think he should have gotten nominated because, you know, not only does he play Scrooge, he plays uh, multiple other roles, uh, such as the ghosts uh, that visit him in the night. He plays all three of those and is wonderful there as well. Uh, just a great piece of work. Definitely Robert Zemeckis' strongest CGI uh, motion capture effort this, thus far. Had finally had a chance to catch uh, Polar Express on ABC Family Channel during the holidays, but really enjoyed Beowulf, but this, I think, he, he hit his stride. And, you know, it's disappointing that that uh, Disney shuttered his Image Movers 3, 3D studio uh, after this film, which, you know, I, I don't think got the audience that it deserved because it was rushed out of 3D theaters uh, in the wake of Avatar uh, coming coming to town. And, and uh, you know, probably would have done better released on Christmas Day, but Avatar had already staked its claim in that 3D uh, box office real estate. Well, look, i got to hand it to you for uh, taking some chances with your top two there. And I don't blame you uh, for choosing Drag Me to Hell. You know, I loved that movie the first time I saw it, and I was very skeptical going into it. I thought it looked like the Skeleton Key Part 2 uh, when I saw the trailer. And I had lost faith in Sam Raimi uh, based on you know his work on the Spider-Man series, which I wasn't a huge fan of. The first two films weren't bad, but the third one sort of jumped the shark in a lot of ways, and I think Corey, a big Spider-Man fan, may or may not agree with no, that. No, I agree. Okay, but yeah. once I saw it, I thought it was one of the best film-going experience in the movies that I had had in a long time. I had never seen a movie that was as loud as Sam Raimi's film was, and it was just a great piece of horror filmmaking that was in Raimi's wheelhouse, and it was good to see that. Do you agree with that, Corey? Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I again... I'll probably talk about that later. Okay. I also wanted to say, though, Graham, I can't make the leap with you that A Christmas Carol is the best movie of the year, but I did enjoy it a lot more than I thought I would. Um, and I, I do definitely agree that it is Zemeckis' best motion capture work. Some of the, uh, I mean, some of the rendering of, of the visuals is really astounding, and the 3D really pops in a way that uh, it didn't in Beowulf, and it hasn't in very many films thus far. Well, I really... Would Go ahead, what, Graham. What, what keeps it from being in the conversation is my question for you. What, if you really enjoy it, what keeps it from being in that top five conversation? To be honest, if it had been a... I mean, it's a very close adaptation of the book, which I appreciate, but there are one too many what I call 3D roller coaster sequences that I feel were thrown into the story at random moments sort of to keep it, I guess, family-friendly and, and, and entertaining. And they are entertaining, but I feel like they're the tones somewhat clash a little bit particularly in the in the ghost of uh ghosts of christmas yet to come sequence which i thought was somewhat inappropriate yeah you just sort of had um and that was the sort of grim reaper type right. character right yeah you you just kind of had one chase sequence after the other uh in that film which really kind of took away from the dickens text that you mentioned graham that the movie uh so embraces and i think that that was one of the better steps that zemeckis took with that movie and look i really enjoyed it too uh i personally wish i hadn't seen it in 3d i'm just not on the 3d uh, bandwagon i think 2d just is a better film film experience and you're watching a real movie that way and it's less of a gimmick but and i do agree that it is zemeckis's best um 3d mocap work to date but in a way you're kind of choosing the lesser of three evils i think polar express and beowulf are horrible movies i think polar express has some merit but uh just isn't a very good movie overall and when the steven tyler elf shows up it just loses all credibility uh, no, beowulf, i think you're selling beowulf short it was a great experience yeah, beowulf and I, was hopefully cool. they'll re-release it in 3d 
Yeah, well, the, the, the best Beowulf has yet to be made, I would say. Uh, but let's move on to our top five performances of the year. Uh, and, Graham, I'll let you start it off. Um, give us your top five. You know, my, my credentials or my criteria here is that um, we have the top five performances, uh, no matter the gender of the year. And if you've got both genders, if you've got to split them and uh, give us ten total performances, that's fine. But I'm going to be ranking my top five performances of the year. And I'm going to call mine the uh, Christoph Waltz Monique Memorial List because I think that those are pretty much the two best performances of the year and wind up on everybody's list. And if they wind up on yours, it's totally justified. I think they might be the two best performances of the year but Graham start us off yeah I mean I'll leave I'll leave Christoph Waltz uh, I think you know off the list because I think he I think it's kind of everybody agrees that he gave the best performance of the year and Monique as well uh, especially for her delivery of the line and precious your daddy got that AIDS virus um but I thought that Gabourey Sidibe uh was one of the best performances of the year I'll start with her uh, ben, as you said over and over again, it's a true performance, uh, a transformation. Uh, the character Precious is so different from Gabby Sidibe's uh, real-life persona that proves that you know it is a, a, a an incredible piece of acting uh, that that carries that film along with other great performances and uh, great filmmaking. So Gabby Sidibe. Um, the rest of the, the names on my list are male, and I'm not being sexist here. I, I just think that there were a lot of great male performances in 2009. Uh, I'm going to start with Nicolas Cage in Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, Bernard Herzog's uh, <laughs> kind of out-of-nowhere cop action drama comedy uh, film uh, that, that, that was released in the fall. Nicolas Cage, this is some of the strongest work of his career. That's saying a lot. He goes for it. It's obvious that he's happy to be in a Werner Herzog film. Uh, takes all kinds of chances, goes out on a limb, and it results in a, you know a wacky, trippy performance that will no doubt satisfy fans of Nicolas Cage. That's my first one uh, from my male group here. Second, I gotta say, uh, Alec Baldwin and It's Complicated which I thought was a very underrated movie, and, and audiences don't agree with me because it made it cleared $100 million at the box office. You mean Jack Donaghy in It's Complicated, right? Maybe, because Alec Baldwin has, and as he's, he's like I say this too, as a, like a fine wine, he's gotten better with age, and he's created this persona that, yes, is very similar to Jack Donaghy uh, on 30 Rock, but it does nothing but help this movie Every scene he's in in this movie is gold. Every line he reads is gold in this movie. His presence. And, he, you know, it's not just Jack Donaghy uh, riffing in this film. It, he's, he's, he spans a lot of different emotions. Uh, he is cocky. He's loving. Then he's basically reduced to a weeping loser. Uh, and the whole time just does it with this swagger that Alec Baldwin has kind of acquired and... In, 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 uh, yeah, the, the swagger that's just intensified as he's gotten older that he didn't have when he was in Beetlejuice or Prelude to a Kiss. But he's got it here, and uh, it was one of the best performances of the year to me. Uh, another one is kind of a, an easy an easy pick. It's uh, Charlotte Coupley from District 9, who uh, carried that film, I think, and gave it a heart and soul, uh, which led to it being embraced by so many people and um, nominated for Best Picture. 
thought it was a shame that he wasn't nominated for Best Actor at the Academy Awards. Uh, finally, I'm, I'm going to say who I really would have voted for for Best Actor of the Year, which is Paul Rudd in I Love You, Man. This movie, you know, right? you can say yes, it's just a silly Apatowian comedy, even though it's not produced by Judd Apatow. I think Paul Rudd gives a subtle, nuanced, hilarious, at times painful performance as one of the most awkward human beings to ever walk the earth. <laughs> and every and again, like like Baldwin, everything he does in this movie is just pitch perfect. Paul Rudd and I Love You Man. I'll agree with that. He was on my honorable mentions list, actually. There were moments when I was watching I Love You Man in a crowded theater where it seemed like the entire room was cringing throughout the first 40 minutes of yeah. the movie and even throughout the entire thing at what Paul Rudd was doing. I mean, it was really painful. The guy uh, came across as this uh, just completely clumsy, uh, bumbling idiot, but he his intentions were always pure. Uh, Corey, let's run through your top five really fast. Sure. Um Starting off is is Peter Capaldi from In the Loop, uh, who plays uh, Malcolm Tucker, the extraordinarily foul-mouthed uh, spin doctor. Uh, Capaldi is like this hurricane that sort of sweeps in through the movie and um, spits out this in hilariously inventive, profane dialogue. It's so much fun. Um, next, uh, Michael Sulbarg from A Serious Man, who plays uh, the beleaguered Larry Gopnik. Uh, the protagonist, who um, I mean, it's just such a it's such a really subtle performance, the, the sort of which was always going to be overlooked by the Academy. But if you want to see a heart and soul, you know, somebody really bring uh, the Coen Brothers' work to the big screen in in like just a really compassionate way, uh, Stuhlbarg does a great job with this. Um, next is Abby Cornish from Bright Star. Um, I, I think that's a tremendously underrated performance. Um, she plays uh, Fanny Braun, who falls in love with the poet John Keats in the film. Um, and Jane Campion always gets great performances from her actresses. Um, this is no exception. Uh, next is, uh, this is, this surprised even me, um, Tobey Maguire in Brothers, uh, who is terrifying in that movie. Who's just absolutely terrifying as um, as a emotionally scarred uh, F, uh, veteran of the war in Afghanistan. Uh, finally, since we're leaving off Christoph Waltz and Monique, uh, my favorite female performance of the year was Carrie Mulligan in, in Education. Um, such a total revelation from a previously unknown actress uh, who basically carried that whole film on her shoulders. Yeah, I agree, and she starts off my honorable mentions list, actually, and I'll run through that list really quickly. It includes Mulligan in what I thought was a great performance in a really good movie uh, with a not-so-great epilogue. Uh, Jeremy Renner in The Hurt Locker was terrific. He was the driving force of that film, other than Catherine Bigelow behind the camera. Chris Pine in Star Trek, yeah, I really thought, was the heart of the movie. Uh, the stand-up comedians in The Informant who I thought were all great casting choices uh, in Steven Soderbergh's uh, unusual comedy. Michael Stuhlbarg was on my list as well, along with Fred Melamed, uh, who played Cy Abelman. Uh, Paul Rudd on the list. Tom Hardy in Bronson. Nice. Uh, a good pick. And Jemaine Clement in Gentleman Broncos. <laughs> no matter uh, what you might say about the film, he gave a great performance. He really did. And uh, just to run through my top five 
performances of the year, male and female. Uh, thinking all the way back to March, I never forgot him. Jackie Earl Haley in Watchmen. I thought that uh, the movie had its flaws for sure, but it was an interesting experience overall. But Jackie Earl Haley was the one constant throughout the entire film. I really am enjoying his comeback um, ever since uh, 2006, Little Children. And onward we go with Nightmare on Elm Street. We'll see what he can do with it. But a really per terrific performance as Rorschach in that film. And I'm uh, with you on In the Loop, but with a different performance. Tom Hollander, I thought, yeah. gave uh, the best performance in that film. Uh, he was hilarious, and he continues to do hilarious work uh, since his work in Pride and Prejudice back in 2005. Tom Hollander is just a great actor, hilarious in that film, and I really thought he was overshadowed, perhaps, by Capaldi, who did fantastic work, but Hollander kind of gave the more subtle performance as just the doofus uh, minister. Uh, Matt Damon in The Informant can't ignore uh, the work he did. Uh, Gabby Sidibe. Um, my second favorite performance of the year on this list and Precious, what I just thought was a brilliant debut from this young actress, and I look forward to seeing what she should do. I think she should actually host Saturday Night Live. I think she would be terrific. And my favorite performance of the year, and I'm going to be cheating here, this is three actors, but I'll start with who I think uh, was the heart of this film, and it's Inglorious Bastards and Melanie Laurent um, as Shoshana who ran this uh, movie theater, I thought um, it's probably the best female performance we've seen in a Quentin Tarantino film thus far, and uh, she just brought a maturity to Inglorious Bastards that gave it the credibility it really needed, because the movie could have slipped into this sort of cartoonish territory that we've seen Tarantino sort of flirt with, and uh, this, uh, what some people might call subplot of the movie with this young woman running this movie theater could have bored people uh, when we were away from the Bastards, but I just thought Melanie Laurent did a brilliant job. And uh, also with her, Daniel Brühl, who has gone unnoticed, it seems, uh, being overshadowed by Christoph Waltz, Oscar-winning performance in the film, and Michael Fassbender as Archie Hickox yeah. uh, during that whole sequence, the Operation Kino sequence. Awesome, awesome performances throughout that movie, and you could name a lot of different people, and maybe we'll talk about it a little later. Uh, but Graham, thank you so much for joining us this morning here on 90.7, our movie talk show. It's always good to have you, and I hope things are warm up in New York City. Yep, thanks for having me. Yeah, well, join us again, and uh, maybe you can catch Graham on CNN from time to time. He does appear on camera to talk movies. He did fairly well with his Oscar picks this year, but uh, you know, maybe better luck next year, Graham. Maybe uh, Avatar will pull it out, uh, but we'll see. Um, We'll be right back. We'll be joined by Matt Scalici, who's going to be talking about the top individual scenes and sequences uh, from the year 2009. So stick around. This is 90.7, the capstone WVUA-FM, the movie talk show. Uh, playing us out right now is The Smiths with There's a Light That Never Goes Out, a pick from Corey this week. And this is from The 500 Days of Summer, his favorite film of the year. We'll be right back. <laughs> You aren't. Money point seven. Welcome back to the Movie Talk Show on 90.7 FM. We're now joined by FilmNerds.com creator Matt Scalici to discuss our top five individual scenes and sequences of 2009. Hey, Matt, how you doing? Good. Hey, i got to give a couple of caveats about my appearance this morning. All right. Uh, number, number one, 
I'm at home taking care of my two-year-old by myself. My wife's off enjoying her life today, so uh, I'm kind of at the whim of uh, Yo Gabba Gabba basically this morning. So if, if you hear some noises, that, that will just be me taking care of that. Uh, and number two is my upstairs neighbors chose this morning to move out. So while I'm happy about that, there's, there's going to be a lot of additional noise coming from that. So I just want to apologize in advance for the extreme amount of background noise you're going to hear from, from my segment. Well, so far, so good, Matt. All right. <laughs> so, Matt, um, top five individual scenes and sequences. Why don't you uh, start us off? We're going to go bottom to top. Is that how we're yeah. going to do it? Yeah. Okay. Well, my number five, and you should love this one, Corey, I know, is uh, it's actually from a movie that I wouldn't be in my top five movies, but I really like this sequence. Um, it's from 500 Days of Summer. Oh, boy. Yeah, and it's the, uh, you know... I thought there were a few, look, that movie tried a lot of uh, fun, interesting things, and some of them worked and some of them didn't, but one that I think did work was the, the scene where we sort of see uh, the, the main character going to a party, and there's uh, one half of the screen is showing us how it plays out in his head, sort of ideally, and the other half shows us uh, how it actually plays out, and I just think, I just think that is a, is a really good job of, of what that movie was trying to do all along, you know, like I said, at times it succeeded, at, at times it failed, but, you know, it was trying to show you kind of the, the difference between, uh, you know, the idealized version that a lot of us have of kind of, you know, young love in our 20s, and, and the difference between that and how it actually usually turns out, which is not very good, and so, yeah, I, I thought that scene really pulled off what they were trying to do with that movie. I agree, Matt. I think that that, movie, I think that that scene is probably what sparked a lot of people to make the quick Annie Hall comparisons just because it had a split screen, and Annie Hall did too, and this is a romance about a young couple, and I thought people were a little too quick to make those comparisons, but I did think that that scene worked, and it was a nice device used by uh, debut filmmaker Mark Webb. Or no, um, yeah, it was yeah. his debut. Yeah, yeah it was absolutely. His debut. But I, I, I like that movie too. We might talk about that a little later. Um, Corey uh, might talk about it because it's his favorite <laughs> film of the year. And right. we, just play, we actually just played a song uh, coming in. Uh, it was the Smith song. And the Smiths are awesome because that movie says it is, right? Yeah, that's, that's why right, you want to yeah. date people. Right, that's why you like date the Smiths. People, which I think might be the point of the movie, uh, Corey. Uh, but again, <laughs> we'll talk about that later. But uh, Matt, give us your next one. Uh, my number four is uh, not there's not as much to say about it necessarily, but it's the opening titles from The Watchmen, another movie that would not make my top ten list for the year. But uh, man, that that was that was just a really really great. That that's what Zack Snyder does well. It's stuff like that, like the opening sequence of The Watchmen, where you know it's just these great I- iconic images, and yeah, maybe maybe anybody with that taking that basic concept could have made a cool opening sequence. Um, but I just think that that's where Zack Snyder's technical prowess really helps him because those shots, those sort of super slow-mo shots we get of these really iconic images with superheroes sort of replacing the, the images we know in them, He, I, I just feel like the composition of those shots is such... Uh, such a, a great example of why people sort of have some faith that Zack Snyder is going to come around to become a really great director. I don't think he's pulled it off quite yet, but I think 
he, he's got so much technical talent that sooner or later here he's going to get a great screenplay and he, he is going to make a really good movie, I think. Now, Corey, you were really excited about Watchmen uh, when you first saw the trailer because I think uh, we were in the same midnight screening of Iron Man, yeah. maybe, and uh, I was sitting above you and when the uh, company logo came up and the Smashing Pumpkins music started, um, I saw that you had some visible excitement i saw a fist pump there was a fist pump and i think you know giggling ensued yeah there was some giggling and too. some uh you know awkward stares from your girlfriend a little bit of uh, that when she there's saw always you do that, that. Yeah, that's... but i mean when when you saw the opening titles did you think you were about to get the movie you were praying for um without spoiling something from my own scenes list yes okay um <laughs> No, but I, I really like that movie even still. I mean, but we'll talk about that later. Okay. I don't just like the movie, by the way. I mean, I don't think it's a great movie. I, I think it's really, I think it's really good. But, yeah. But uh, I think that sequence is the most valuable thing from it. We'll move on, Matt. What's your next pick? My number three uh, made the list because I just saw this movie last week, but it is a 2009 release. And uh, Ben and I spoke about this on the Film Nerds podcast that we did about Gentleman, Gentleman Broncos, the, um, the Jared Hess movie that no one saw last year at all. Um, and there's a, there's a sequence in it that is, comes about three-quarters of the way through the movie, and uh, it, it, it's, uh, it's a montage set to uh, a Scorpion song called Wind of Change. And uh, it's just a horrible... Song, but um, but it's just it's it's a great moment that sort of encapsulates what's great about Jared Hess, which is just kind of highlighting the weirdness of uh, of all of his characters in this strangely designed universe that he's put them in. And uh, you know, it's just one of those. Uh, I'm I'm a big Jared Hess fan. I like the look of his movies. I like uh, I like his writing. And uh, to me, that that. Probably, along with uh, a sequence that Ben and I also discussed this from Nacho Libre, it's probably my favorite individual sequence that he's done. Wow. I, I like the sequence, too, and I think that the Scorpion song probably sold you initially, Matt, you being a fan of things like that. Of 80s? <laughs> yeah. Why well, well, you, well, you think I'm a fan of 80s hair metal? I don't know. I don't know why I would think that. I, I don't know why uh, I would think that after seeing you in college wearing like a uh, I'm not sure what else a, a, a wig when you were doing your darkness birthday party. Look, ben, this Look is that may or may not have happened. That may or may not have happened. Uh, so I'm just I'm just kidding. Can you see air quotes through the the radio? I don't think so. Uh, yeah. but Matt, let's go forward. Uh, number two for me, and uh, the, my number two and number one could probably be interchangeable. But my number two is I guess you could call it kind of the silent sequence, the silent life story sequence from Up, um, which I think is the best the best sequence that Pixar has made. It's the best piece of uh, filmmaking that has come out of Pixar, out of all of the great, great movies that that, that, that group has made. Uh, that's just the most uh, impactful emotionally powerful piece of animated film that I've ever seen. And I mean I was I was uh, I was pretty blown away when I saw it. And and you know, I just I don't get affected 
that much by many films, live action or animated. And it, I mean, to me, the, the rest of the movie, we've had discussions about up and and whether or not the whole movie works that well. Which, you know, I, I would I would argue the the rest of the movie doesn't really live up to that. But that sequence, there's there's no question. I mean, it's it's one of the it's one of the most impressive things anyone's ever done with the animated film genre. So, Matt, you would call that Pixar's finest hour, finest moment? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Wow, okay. And I think that this moment or this sequence might have, it might be on Corey and my list, Corey's and my yeah. list. So let's go ahead and knock it out, Corey. All right. Um, I agree with you, Matt. I think it, it, it is arguably the most beautiful uh, four minutes of 2004. I don't know that I would... Uh, go out on that limb to say that it's uh, Pixar's greatest moment. I think that it, it's in the running for sure. I, you know, I think it would take looking back at their films to decide what that might be. But it's certainly, uh, you know, probably going to be on that top five list as I well. I know nothing else has affected me that Pixar's done or any animated film has done uh, the way that 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 did. I mean, I I, I personally was was uh, was pretty just I was just moved by it sitting there watching it in the theater yeah Corey don't you think it sort of uh, punches you in the face emotionally uh, as you're watching just four minutes of the film the very beginning of it and you feel like you've lived an entire life uh, the entire life of uh, this senior citizen who we're about to embark on a journey with uh, for the rest of the film yeah a friend of the show Ryan Mazur after he saw the film commented that it should have been rated R for emotional violence <laughs> uh, such was the <laughs> devastation yeah you know and that that sequence sequence actually has what I consider to be the most adult moment in uh, Pixar's work so far uh, when you see them in the doctor's office right. uh, that's just not a moment for children uh, in more ways than one, I guess. Um, but, Matt, if you want to continue with your list. Well, my number one uh, is, it, it, like I said, this is really up there with the up sequence, but uh, this this was a scene that I I was not expecting to be as good as it was, and, and when I saw it, to me, this is an easy pick for number one because when it was over, I sat back in my theater seat and just said, Wow, that that was an awesome sequence, and and there was no, and, and I've seen it multiple times since, and it's had the same effect. And it's the first chapter of Inglorious Bastards, and I don't know if it's fair to call that a sequence because it's a long scene, but uh, it's it's just um, you know, there's, uh, we've talked ad nauseum on this radio show and previous incarnations of this radio show about Quentin Tarantino and what he's been up to this decade, basically. Um, you know, I was I, I was as disappointed as anybody on the planet in, in what he's done with his past, you know, film and a half. I don't know what you want to call Death Proof, but uh, I thought Death Proof was absolute worthless garbage, and I didn't like 90% of Kill Bill Volume 2. Uh, and I just was very discouraged about his abilities as a filmmaker and a writer and what had happened to him. And that scene right there, I'd put it up with anything that he's done in his career so far. And, you know, that's saying a lot for a guy that many people believe was probably one of the best screenwriters of the 1990s. I think that sequence holds up and, and should be right up there with anything else he's done. And it, it's just such a great, perfect um, scene that takes you, you know, takes you from ominous 
too uh, scared, too uncomfortable. There are times where they lull you back into a sense of comfort and then pull the rug back out from under you again. And it's, you know, there's very, very little actual action happening, and everything is sort of happening under the surface of the dialogue in this scene. Um, and it's, I think that's the scene that basically won Christoph Waltz his Oscar. I think that had he not even been in the rest of the movie, he would have still won the Oscar. I think maybe he would have, and yeah. that's, that's a really interesting point, man. Um, and Matt, I seem to recall back in 2007 when we were making uh, these lists, the diner scene in Death Proof was actually on your top five uh, scenes of the list. The diner scene in Death Proof? Yeah. What are we, what are we when the girls about? are all sitting around the, you know, the diner table just jibber jabbering yeah in. circling around that, then, i thought that was your favorite scene of the year you know when the stunt ladies and is, am, I them, just, am, am i just is the sarcasm going over my head is it i don't know <laughs> I, you know, I could have sworn that, that 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 was it but you know i could be wrong maybe Look, there's, if there's if there's one if there's you couldn't even make me watch <laughs> a second of death proof again other than maybe the part with the cop and his son from kill bill that's the only part of it that I ever want to see again. That was kind of the part that took me out of it, but we digress. <laughs> we digress on uh, Death Proof. Um, yeah. Corey, I think, again, we're having some overlap here. Sure. Uh, we, we both love this movie, Inglorious Bastards, and, of course, the opening sequence is going to be in our list. It, I think that people might even uh, come to some sort of consensus by calling this the best scene of 2009 and one of Quentin Tarantino's best scenes of his career. Right. I When I, I was actually compiling my list, I kind of foresaw this and didn't even include any Glorious Bastard scenes in my list uh, for that reason um, because I feel like if I had Three of the top five probably would have been from Inglorious Bastards. That's I not even put another Inglorious Bastards scene on my list. Yeah, that's not even including like the tavern sequence or the end of the movie, uh, which is just awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, those three probably would have been on my list had I included Inglorious Bastards. At all, yeah. And while we're still on it, uh, before we should move on for sure, because we could talk about this movie forever. Really, I mean, uh, the tavern scene was on my list as well as the opening. But uh, you know, I again, this is kind of like one of those memorial lists where you right. have to you have to exclude them because of course they're going to be on there. But my other favorite scene from that movie, if we're taking those off, is the British military briefing yeah. uh, between Hickox, Mike Myers, and uh, Winston Churchill. I think that is some of Tarantino's best writing ever, and a lot of people. Um, like some of the music choices, uh, they, they, they feel like that part took them out of the movie because they were too aware that Mike Myers was in it and doing... A lot of people just sort of reduced it to his doing his Austin Powers or kind of doing a version of that, and I think that's the furthest thing from the truth, and I think Mike Myers actually gives one of his best film performances to date in the film. I just thought it was brilliant. But, um, Corey, let, let's go down our list quickly. Sure. Uh, if you want to start us off. Uh, number five, and this is probably going... This whole list is actually going to sound unusual, I'm sure. Um, but number five is the last uh, 15 minutes or so of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Uh, which That's not a bad call. I, I, I thought about that too, Corey. Yeah, I, I, I just love... I mean, the cinematography from Bruno Del Bono, which was nominated for an Academy Award, is, is, is excellent. And uh, you, you have emotional stakes for, I feel like, one of the first times in the film series. Uh, it culminates in the death of a major character, which I don't want to spoil, but everybody knows. Uh, and uh, the change from the book, which includes a, a, a sort of wand salute, uh, an impromptu wand salute by the, the kids and faculty of, of Hogwarts is really moving. Um, number four uh, is a scene from, I feel like, the 
grossly underrated uh, Joe Wright film, The Soloist, uh, in which um, Jamie Foxx's character, Nathaniel Ayers, uh, a homeless prodigy, um, goes to the symphony with um, with Robert Downey Jr.'s character, and um, the audience gets to see what Nathaniel pictures in his mind as he hears the music. It's this wonderful light show, uh, which a lot of critics attacked for being heavy-handed. I really thought it was uh, an excellent sequence. Uh, number three, um, it's a sequence in the uh, now, I'm sure, horribly reviled, uh, but at the time, very, very popular horror film, Paranormal Activity, um, in which uh, our obnoxious boyfriend protagonist decides that he wants to capture some physical evidence that uh, a demon is in their hallway and puts some powder out in the hallway. Um, all hell breaks loose, sort of. Uh, needless to say, he gets his physical evidence, and I was really creeped out. Um, number two... Oh, hold on. Okay, okay. I'm going to stop you for all a right. second. I'm not going to let you get away Wait, with this. Wait, is that movie already horribly reviled? Is it already I think so. not cool again? Because I haven't even seen it yet to, to think that it's cool so that I can then say it's not cool. Well, right? they've already managed to go ahead and fart out a sequel, uh, which, you know, is about to start production, right. I think. They've just uh, gotten a director. Time for an which, October release. Yeah, so I think That's it's, a mark of quality right it's there. It's ridiculous. And look, I, in my... So my they're going to give it the Saw treatment? Well, well, yeah. sort of, and I think, you know, and I'm about to go in a direction which I think uh, got the same, a similar treatment, but my question to you paranormal activity fans, <laughs> you people, have y'all seen the Blair Witch Project? Yes. Have you seen it? Yes. Because did it not accomplish and uh, sort of pioneer exactly what this movie is trying to do? Because, honestly, look, I watched the movie, um, I didn't see it in a theater that may have... That's your problem. That may be my problem, that is but look, absolutely the movie was not... No, that shouldn't, that, that shouldn't yeah. be necessary. Look, yeah, I, I agree. I saw, I saw a movie called Wreck, R-E-C, that is a Spanish yeah, show. Yeah, that's a good movie. poorly uh, by an American studio, but that's a, look, that's a movie that... It's the, it's the same genre here. It's the, it's the uh, found footage horror film. It's, I, I watched it on a, a relatively small TV. It was absolutely... Effective. It, it was it was one of the scariest movies I've seen in the last ten years, and uh, I don't think I, look. I haven't seen Paranormal Activity yet. I know I know the gist of it. I know the the it's the same genre there. Um, but I don't think you have to see, but you can make a scary horror movie, especially a horror movie that's shot on video, made to look like found footage. That ought to be scary on a TV. Look, I watched Paranormal Activity on my iPod. While I was running on a treadmill at the rec center, and that, that is pretty bad. It, at 9 a.m. and look, movie wasn't scary, okay? Um, but no, look, I, I just didn't. I just didn't look. Horror movie affects people differently. Matt, are you are you uh, struggling there? Do you have a bad signal? Oh, can you not hear me? No. I think uh, Matt's daughter is like breathing fire right now or something. <laughs> I don't know what's going on, but uh, we'll we'll get him back on here in a second. But look. The movie's all right. I get why it's you know as 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 revered as it is, but I've seen it before and I've seen scarier. It's before. a good movie, man. It's and, all you right. know, I, and I'm not debating the merits of the of the entire film. I just found that particular sequence really effective. Uh, let's move on. But I like the movie a yeah, lot too. Yeah, let's go. Go uh, ahead. Number two, um, the scene with the uh, medium uh, and the séance in Drag Me to Hell, um, which is just some unbridled Sam Raimi fun. Um, with the uh, the dead eye dance uh, sort of homage to his uh, his evil dead days, 
um, and the talking goat, which is some of the best, like most hilarious black humor in that movie. And uh, my number one scene, since we've uh, discounted up, I'll I'll pause so Matt can hear this. Matt, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. What, okay. I, I think uh, I think my signal must have gone bad. It's I, all good, but uh, Corey's about to give us his number one. Number one, we've already heard it today since we've taken out the up scene, but it's uh, the opening credits of Watchmen, which are by far the most effective part of that movie. I agree with Matt uh, hey, entirely. Can, can I can I also say real quick though that that. Uh, even though I hated Drag Me to Hell, I did like the 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 scene that you're talking about, Corey, with, awesome. the, with the medium. I'm sorry you hated that awesome movie, though. I tell you what, though, and before Corey uh, finishes this point on Watchmen, uh, that sequence was my, probably... I don't know, if I had a least favorite sequence, that was it, because I, <laughs> I, I couldn't get over the bad Buffy the Vampire Slayer makeup mm. uh, that that the guy had, the, the one who got possessed right. by the, uh, what's the name of the demon? The, la, the, the Lamia. The, the Lamia, yeah. I just, if it, I was going to go with a sequence from Drag Me to Hell that I, that I really liked, it would be the parking garage sequence. Yeah, that was that was a close runner-up. It was sweet, but uh, continue with your Watchmen point. I I just I that that uh, that film, like Matt said, just encapsulates everything that's special about that the story, just the alternate universe that the story set in, and it really showcases Zack Snyder's uh, strengths as a filmmaker. Yeah, I mean I, it's a great piece of pop art by itself. I agree with you, and I think that you know as we were watching that opening credit sequence we really felt like we were at an event movie and you know that rarely happens these days where you're you really feel like you're part of something as you're watching it you know i felt that way with inglorious bastards i felt that way with star trek this year too you know where it felt like the summer movie is back right. in a way and watchmen kind of had that quality with that sequence and yeah, yeah. I, just jumping in, the um, an honorable mention would be the first like ten minutes of Star Trek. Yeah, to you. great, and that's on my list uh, actually. Well, it's on. It, it, well, actually, it's not on this list. It's on a later uh -huh. list, uh, and we'll talk about that later. Um, but let me go through my top ones really fast. A few have been mentioned, including the Inglorious Bastards ones and Up, uh, Married Life sequence, but also in Up, the pinning of the Ellie badge. Yes, uh, at the end of the movie. Absolutely. That absolutely floored me and you know just when you think you're in the clear you know emotionally so to speak when you think that you know we're winding down here pixar sort of says nope sorry we're gonna get you again we're gonna stab you in the gut and you know <laughs> kick you in the face one more time uh you know commit some of that emotional violence as you mentioned before and when he put that badge on russell i mean good lord man pixar just did it again and, uh, of course, when you've got Michael Giacchino in your corner, too, um, you know, giving you the best score of the year and Pixar's best score to date, uh, that certainly helps. Uh, From a Serious Man, the Goy's Teeth yes. sequence um, is on my list as well. It, it just blew my mind. I didn't know what was happening. I didn't know what the Coen brothers were trying to do, and I didn't care. It was just all kinds of awesome. I still don't know what they were trying to do. Yeah, me neither, really. I mean, like, look, and, and neither do the characters in the film, and right. I think that's kind of the point of it, but it's just one of the single coolest moments in uh, Coen brothers' history to me. It was just a pure, raw Coen experience, uh, th those few minutes. But, uh, and also, you know, we're going to talk about our best uses of music, and uh, I didn't know the name of the song until today, but it's Jimi Hendrix's um, Machine Gun 
is used during that sequence, and it's just a really powerful uh, use of music. And uh, rounding it out, this isn't my number one or anything, and I've mentioned it before. Steven Soderbergh's film, The Girlfriend Experience, uh, the the breakup slash bad review, uh, featuring the song Hot Tub by Freedom Tickler, which we played with the film's co-star Glenn Kenny a few weeks ago. I just thought that was a really moving sequence uh, in sort of a uh, what some might consider kind of a cold and distant film. Uh, I sort of felt the opposite while I was watching uh, that sequence of the film. Um, but either way, I think that rounds it out for us, guys. Uh, Matt, if you want to give us your top five or ten for 2009, we'll, we'll uh, end it here. I'm going to give you five because uh, I, didn't, I didn't love 2009 as a movie year. I've still, got, I've still got quite a few that I want to see that I haven't yet. And these are, these are top five. My, my, my uh, criteria for this, I'll just say in advance here, it's not that I think these are the five greatest films, as in Oscar Best Picture worthiest five films. These are the five films that I want to watch again and would, and would purchase and, and watch multiple times. Does that make sense? These are like the five films I like. Sure, sure. Most. So my number five is The Informant, um, movie that eventually seemed to get completely overshadowed at the end of the year. I thought it was going to get some award attention. It, I think it was grossly overlooked because it's a way fun movie. Um, my number four is actually Star Trek, which uh, I've, I've still only seen the one time in the theater, but I, I plan on seeing it again soon. I think it, I think that's kind of uh, a movie that, that made me believe that J.J. Abrams can really be a great Hollywood filmmaker. I wasn't totally sold on him until that. Uh, my number three is Fantastic Mr. Fox, which is another movie that very few people got a chance to see last year, unfortunately. Um, but I think it's a pure Wes Anderson experience, and it's uh, it's a lot of fun. My number two, and uh, I, I was struggling with where to put this on the list, but I, I feel okay with it right here. It's actually, my number two is Moon. Nice. Um, and, and it's just because it made me think so much uh, about what was going on in the movie. And I, I just think it's a. I just think, uh, you know, if you want to put it up against other science fiction movies that came out last year, District 9, for example, that did get a lot more love than Moon did, you know, I think District 9, uh, it, it might sort of hit its point, you know, and, and make you realize what it's trying to say, but it hits the point over the head. And there's really no chance that you're going to miss that point, and you're probably not going to think about it a ton after you leave the theater. Moon uh, brings up so many interesting implications, and I, and I don't want to spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen it, but there there's some, you know there's some really once you find out what actually is going on in the movie, there's there's no you know ambiguity to it. They tell you what's going on, but there still is enough kind of uh, ethical and moral questions to discuss that. It's a movie you're going to think about for a long time, and maybe even change your opinion about several times after you see it. Uh, and I just, I just think it was a really sort of rich experience for a, for an independent sci-fi film. I, I was really impressed. And uh, my number one's Inglorious Bastards, which we've talked about a lot. But uh, I sure didn't see another movie last year that uh, I felt like watching five more times as soon as I finished <laughs> it. So, uh, and I have watched it five more times. So, <laughs> but uh, that's that's my top five. Nice. Well, Matt, we know you're a father, you're a husband, you've got things to do, and we really yeah, appreciate you. The zoo. The zoo. Gotta, yeah, we're going to the zoo here. I want to go. So. 
Yeah, that sounds like fun. Yeah. Okay. It's a nice day, man. Hey, man. Enjoy it. Tell Naomi thank you for holding it down. <laughs> hey, look. You can thank Yo Gabba Gabba for <laughs> holding it down. So. It's, it's, it's a miracle worker, isn't it? That's right. All right. Lance Rock, you are my hero. All right. Well, Matt, thanks again, man. We appreciate it. Yeah, enjoyed it, guys. I'll, uh, we'll... Um, do it again soon hopefully most definitely and uh taking us into this next break as we cross the hour uh we're heading into 10 a.m and uh do we do we care Corey? i'm i got nothing no no and coming up we have a, a frequent um collaborator here on this show ben stark will be joining us for our top five uses of music in hey, the I'm film here, guys. I'm, it's stark. I'm oh he's he's already here <laughs> I'm, on the, I'm on the line guys i uh, just finishing watching uh an animated version of The Life and Times of Scrooge McDuck. <laughs> well, how's the music, man? It's, it's uh, a mixture of German techno and uh, just me plucking one guitar string multiple times. Oh, my God. Times. Oh, no. All right, well, uh, you and you and other Ben Stark are going to get to have it out, I think, uh, <laughs> via the web. But uh, playing us out here before we get there is a song from Corey's second favorite film of the year. This is Hearing Damages by Tom York from the film T uh, New Moon from the Twilight Saga, another one of Corey's picks. Second uh, favorite, really? Second favorite of the year, yeah, behind 500 Days of Summer. My lord. Uh, so we'll be right back here on the Movie Talk Show. I thought I told you never to interrupt me while I'm working! 90.7 We're back with our next guest, frequent show contributor and founder, co-founder I should say, of Wonder Mill Films, filmmaker and critic on the side, Ben Stark. <laughs> And before we jump into our top five uses of music in 2009, some of which you might have heard leading up to this segment, uh, Ben, tell us something new about your new upcoming feature-length debut, The Nocturnal Third. First of all, thanks for having me on. Sure. Um, second of all, uh, Nocturnal Third, I guess it's a uh, it's kind of 70s-style, straightforward thriller, uh, like a slow-burn thriller that takes place in a uh, stone fabrication shop. Um, where uh, uh, a young man has to work late, has to work a, a bad late shift, and things start kind of going out of control when a coworker shows up that doesn't need to be there. Um, it's in uh, we're editing right now. I've actually got the timeline sitting here right in front of me, I'm kind of going back and forth on work. Um, so uh, we just finished up some ADR recording and some final pickup shots, and hopefully we'll have something to screen somewhere in late summer, maybe early fall. Awesome, man. We will look out for that, and uh, once that gets going, we'd love to have you back on this show uh, to tell us a little bit more about that. But isn't there Definitely. a blo isn't there a blog that we can uh, check out to you know see what's going on? Yeah, just uh, visit thenocturnalthird.com, and that's uh, right now we have a big website coming. Uh, but right now, it's uh, it's got a link to our trailer um, and uh, just a production blog, like you said. Cool. Well, uh, before we get going here, let's set a little bit of the mood, which um, I think that this might wind up on somebody's list, but uh, let's stand by. This is uh, one of uh, Corey's picks, perhaps, and maybe one of mine, maybe one of Ben's.
Now look, if uh, there's something that bothers me about movie scores, it's monotony. That bothers you? It can, yeah, with movie scores. I mean, I don't know. Sometimes <coughs> it's just if, if I – monotony sort of um, makes me very aware of the score. In, in, not in a way where it's like, you know, the score is enhancing the movie or it's becoming its own character. Um, and I think that argument could be made against Clint Mansell's score for Moon here. And uh, virtually all of his other scores, I would say. Right. But let me let me interject but here. It works for Moon. And part of what made me like Moon so much was this score. And, you know, I can't really explain why, because this is the kind of score that I don't typically like. But um, <clears throat> I don't know. I, I just, and, and Ben, I know you're a big fan of this movie, right? Yeah, yeah, and I really like it. In uh, the filmmaker's name again, Duncan Jones, right? Duncan or Jones, yeah. Duncan yeah. Jones, Bowie. yeah. And this Bowie. Is a, yeah, this is yeah the son of Bowie. Um, but this is a <laughs> debut for him, and um, I gotta say, man, uh, I really like this movie a lot. It didn't wind up on my top ten or anything like that, but I think, of course, Rockwell's performance, which everybody sang about back when it originally opened, and they continue to do that. People thought he was robbed of an Oscar nomination, which may or may not have been realistic. But look, man, it worked for me, and again, uh, one of the bigger factors as to why um, I liked it was Clint Mansell's score. Uh, ben, did this wind up on your top five uses of music in film 2009? It did not, but I do like it. Um and I'm, I wonder if uh, the monotony is uh, is a is a intentional thing, since that's kind of the, one of the problems that the protagonist has is kind of a, uh, a uh, you know getting lost in the monotony. Um, but uh, but it didn't wind up on my list for just because it's for with Clint Mansell. I kind of got spoiled with that fountain score, yeah. which is like ridiculous. <laughs> um, so it, it's it's a lot more muted and kind of. Uh, just kind of less emotional than that one, uh, but I do like it. It just, but it just didn't end up on my list. All right, well, start us off, man. What did? Um, well, uh, just in general, I really like the scores to uh, the Informant, uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox, Harry Potter. Uh, I heard Locke had a really interesting score, and I liked what they did musically and where the wild things are. So, just those are, I guess, my honorable mentions. Um, and then um, my number five, I guess, will be a tie, just for kind of fun proper uses of existing music in, in Glorious Bastards and Adventureland. Adventureland especially had just some really funny moments with music um, and in Glorious Bastards just, you know, I mean, Tarantino knows how to edit to an existing piece of cinematic music and it's really, there's some really great musical moments in that, specifically the, the end titles and then, the, of course, the opening sequence uh, where Hans Landa kind of tightens his grip on a, on a certain situation. Um, uh, my number four is the sequence of Dr. Manhattan's Origins from Watchmen. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it uses uh, <coughs> the Philip Glass score for Koyana Scotsi. Um, I think Pruitt, Ego, and Prophecies are the two tracks yeah. that it kind of mixes. Good uh, pick, man. That's a great yeah. pick. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. It's, it, that whole sequence is just, uh, it's my favorite part in the book. And when they started using those cues in, in some of like, the iTunes trailers and things for the movie, I was like, okay, that's cool. And then I saw the movie, and I was like, wow, that's, it's that sequence alone skyrockets that movie. That on, sequence on almost list. convinced me that Snyder pulled it off in a way. Yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, it's just perfect visual storytelling with with resonant music, and it's just great. All right, man. Number um, number three. Number three is a uh, serious man. Um, not only Carter Burwell's really nice kind of um, 
subtle score, but also just the re, reusing that motif of Somebody to Love by Jefferson Airplane, and especially just kind of visually how they bring that to life uh, and how it kind of interacts with the certain characters. I don't know, uh, ear, I guess is the, the only way to put it. Right, that's, that's um, probably that, my favorite. Yeah, it's just it is really, it, it expressed, I think, exactly kind of what what they were going for with it without bringing too much of its own kind of outsider um, feeling to it, if that makes any sense. Plus, I think it's it's totally evocative of... Um I mean, it's just it's just great shorthand for the for the time period that the movie's set in. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. All right, number two. Number two is um, the opening sequence of Up, um, which of course is that's that's a given, um, but it's it's clinched with the reprise of the the kind of marriage theme that he uses. Um, right. And I think the track's called Memories Can Weigh You Down at the end. Uh, well, I won't spoil what, what happens in the movie. But uh, basically, there's, a, there's there's kind of the, there's the tragic open, and then the the music gets reprised in kind of more of a triumphant way towards the end of the movie, and it kind of it kind of fell on deaf ears the first time I watched the movie. I, I can only attribute it to bad 3D, um, but when I rewatched the movie like 17 times on DVD, um, just that moment um, when I when you get to hear that 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 score uh, that theme reprised at the uh, towards the end, it just uh, it, it gets me every time. Um, and then my number one is another Michael G. Aquino, and that's the ending sequence to Star Trek. Um, and I know it's it's very commercial. It's it's they sold me something that I already bought, um, <laughs> but it just it's just the perfect ending to that movie when we hear the Nimoy voiceover, and then it kind of brings back the the original series theme, and and then rockets into the end credits. It's just it just works on me, and then it also gets a lot of points for it reintroducing a new solid Star Trek theme. Um, especially those big drums on the opening titles. It's very effective. Well, um, things like this shouldn't keep me up at night, but I guess it's better if they do uh, rather than other more ominous things. But uh, I can't decide whether or not I like the Star Trek score or the Up score better in terms of Giacchino's mm. work this year. I think he gave us two brilliant pieces of work. What, No Land of the Lost? You know, <laughs> honorable mention? You know, I saw it. Went, I didn't see Land of the Lost, okay? I haven't seen it yet. But when I looked at the poster, you know, I looked down at the credits and it said music by Michael Giacchino. That almost got me to see that movie. Like, I was like, I, you know, I kind of want to go see this movie now just to hear what he has to offer. You know, that's why I watch Lost is because of Giacchino's score. That's the only reason you watch Lost? Uh, it's it's the number one reason mm. I watch wow. it. There, there, are many reason, there are many other reasons, right. obviously, why I watch that show, but... Giacchino score. Well, he's been on fire this season. I think, yeah, and he, yeah, he's had some good good moments this year already. So. And it's um, the process is amazing. Uh, if you if you have looked into that, uh, how he records that score, I, I, I highly recommend you go to KCRW.com and uh, listen to the most recent episode of the Business with Kim Masters, where one of her correspondents interviews Michael Giacchino, and uh, they talk about the lost recording process. But we digress. Um, Very cool. uh, Corey, let's go through our uh, favorite uses of music this year i'll i'll, I'll go ahead and yeah, uh, go ahead. run through mine uh the music during the goy's teeth in a serious man uh, oh, yeah. uh, which i mentioned before it's Jimi hendrix's um machine gun which was awesome uh marvin hamlish's score in the informant which was a, a criminal act on the part of the academy as to why it was not nominated for an oscar but lots of lots of stuff like that happens uh with the oscars uh michael giacchino's labor of love in star trek 
uh, at the very beginning of the movie sets such a brilliant tone uh, for the rest of the film Absolutely. again. That's that's just one of those moments while I'm watching the movie, and I watched it again recently where I feel like I'm a part of something at the movies, and that was nice to have that feeling again. One that Ben already mentioned, Rabia e Tarantella in Inglorious Bastards, uh, one of the best uh, music cues I've seen in a while uh, to close the film from Ennio Morricone. Freedom Tickler's Hot Tub, which I mentioned before from The Girlfriend Experience. I might be the only one uh, in that camp, but I just really love that song. Is, is that the, the drum solo one? <laughs> no, it's not, actually. Yeah. It's uh, it's the one played during the breakup sequence. Oh, that's right. That's uh, yeah, right. By the, the street performers. Um, Michael Giacchino's Married Life, of course. We've talked about that ad nauseum, I think, for the past several months. And from up in the air, uh, there are a pair, and Corey might mention one. I'll mention the other. Dan Auerbach's Going Home. Uh, played during uh, one of the extended firing montage mm-hmm. sequences uh, early in the film, uh, which really I, I think was a brilliant choice on Jason Reitman's part. It made me seek out Darren Auerbach's uh, solo work after that, and I think that that's really effective. And it's one of the more effective parts of that film, which is really good, and I'll leave it at that. Well, yeah, the second song you mentioned, um, Sad Brad Smith's Help Yourself, which plays over the uh, the wedding sequence, would be one of my honorable mentions. Um, but that's a really good song. Uh, I couldn't limit myself to just five so i split it up into five my five favorite uses of pre-existing pop songs and five original scores so i'll run through the scores very quickly number five nathan johnson's really undervalued work in the brothers bloom um he was also a major contributor to uh his cousin ryan's previous film brick but his work in the brothers bloom is uh, is outstanding number four and I have a soft spot for these guys. Nick Cave and Warren Ellis's score for The Road, uh, which is um, wonderful work. They're previously, I mean, the, the best score of 2007. Yeah, with the, yeah, With yeah, the assassination yeah, of yeah. Jesse James <laughs> by the coward Robert Ford. Uh, but this is another great score from that duo. Number three, uh, Clint Mansell's Moon, which we heard earlier. Uh, number two, this is, this is going to be a pick that I think uh, it will provoke some interesting discussion. Uh, the score for The Box. Uh, by Wynn Butler, Regine Chachan, and uh, Owen, Owen Pallet. Um, two members of the Arcade Fire and one touring member. Um, we'll it, talk about that movie later. Yeah, even if you hate everything about that movie, that score is awesome. That score is totally awesome. And the best score of the year, of course, Michael G. Kino's Up. Um, five favorite individual uses of music. Uh, number five from my de facto favorite scene of the year the times they are changing uh bob dylan's song in watchman in the opening credits number four uh which we've played on this show before i think a couple weeks ago heroes and villains by the beach boys from fantastic mr fox in that really wonderful uh scene where mr and mrs fox uh shimmy into the to the farm uh, by any means necessary. Uh, number three, that great David Bowie cue from Inglorious Bastards, uh, Cat People, putting out fire, um, sort of uh, the war song for Melanie Laurent's Shoshana. Uh, number two, and I, and I guess this would encapsulate this whole movie, singer-songwriter Alexi Murdoch's work in the totally underrated Sam Mendes film Away We Go, uh, specifically the song All My Days, which is sort of the theme of the movie. Um, but that's a great soundtrack. And then number one is previously mentioned, uh, Jefferson Airplane, Somebody to Love, from A Serious Man. Well, cool. Uh, ben, before you go, please offer up your top five to ten movies of 2009. Okay. Um, I guess uh, my honorable mentions would be like my kind of A-minuses, and that's uh, Inglourious Bastards and The Girlfriend Experience. Um, those are really, really good 
good movies. Um, and then uh, starting, it's probably, I think, number seven, something like that, is uh, the Fantastic Mr. Fox. Um, it's, I actually really need to revisit it since I only saw it in the theater, but it was, uh, it's, it's a really great kind of visual interpretation of, of the doll book. Um, the, there's some liberties that are taken with the, with the stories that, that probably need a second look on my part, but uh, on, the, on the whole, it's really fun and really interesting uh, kind of a rich movie. Uh, number six is Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. I never would have guessed that this would actually be anywhere close to one of my favorite movies of the year. But uh, I recently rewatched it again, and it's, it's, it's just a good kind of teen coming-of-age story cross-cut with a, a nice kind of uh, building of an espionage story or kind of a, a assassination plot. Um, and it's just a perfect balance, and it's really, really nicely directed, uh, some really virtuoso stuff from David Yates. Um, number five is the informant. I uh, just recently got to got to finally see uh, Soderbergh's um, uh, latest, um, and I listened to an interview with Scott Z. Burns, uh, the screenwriter, on a, the Creative Screenwriting Podcast, and uh, he's really just seemed like a really smart guy in the way they, they the, the the story kind of evolved from a straight kind of this American Life uh, document to a straight up comedy um, was it's amazing and. Uh, uh, Scott Bakula is surprising. I mean, he's really good in it, and of course Matt Damon's great. And it's just funny, but still responsible enough to, to you know, not not let it just be teasing this guy. Um, number four is Up. Like I said, the first time I watched it, 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 it I liked it, but uh, it didn't necessarily match my expectations. But it's it's far exceeded them since then. Uh, number three is Moon. Um, I just really like little science fiction movies, um, even if little doesn't, you know, if David Bowie's son is doing it, doesn't seem like it would be that small. But uh, mainly Sam Rockwell's performance in this is really good, and it's it's uh, just emotionally um, really nicely set up, and I look forward to seeing any more movies in this cycle, because I did hear that it's going to be kind of a trilogy of kind of small-scale sci-fi movies in this universe that they've created, which is neat. Uh, number two is Star Trek. Um, Again, I would have never guessed that this this would be one of my favorite movies of the year. Um, but uh, it's just it's infectious and it's an addictive movie. Um, it's kind of like Iron Man. Every time you watch it, it gets more fun and, and it's just a healthy kind of candy. Um, and it kind of revitalized uh, just the characters of Star Trek in a in a nice way. And it's nice to know that 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 franchise won't die <laughs> with with boredom. Um, and then number one is uh, the Coen Brothers, A Serious Man, um, which is, uh, uh, again, a, a, another movie that I just wasn't really, I, I didn't put it off for a long time, but this, the distribution model was so limited that I, I just didn't get to see it for a long time. And I almost kind of thought, well, I guess I, I, guess I don't have to see the new Coen Brothers movie um, anytime soon. But then as soon as I started watching it, it was, I was, that, that notion was insanity. Um, uh, I think I watched it. I, m- I meant to watch like a little bit of it just starting at night, and I ended up watching the whole thing several times in a couple days. Um, and it's uh, it's just great. It's Between it and Star Trek, it's the reason I go to the movies. Um, there's a, a intelligence and a subtlety uh, in storytelling where the, the Coen brothers, I mean, they're the masters of this, of just creating a, a universe and a, a story with, with interesting stakes that changes often and kind of gets you involved but never explains anything never they never hit you over the head with anything 
and they let you do they it's just like fertilizer for the imagination basically well uh ben i know you're um a bit of an optimist uh you would you know i think you probably agree with me but i'm interested to know if you have any picks for worst of the year worst of the year yeah um, off the top of your head, where you were just, you know, in worst of the year, my criteria for that is a little different. I, you know, I don't really consider meet the Spartans because yeah, I mean, obviously, the years is like disappointing. Yeah, most disappointing usually. I mean, where I'm just kind of angry at the movie for not being as good as I had hoped it would be. But um, what about you? Anything this year? I would say, man, I really hate to, you know, say this even, but Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans. Oh man, just not vibing with it, man. Uh, it's I can see what it's it's going for, but at the end of the day, I just can't. I can't give time to that much just nastiness. And you're a Herzog guy too. Yeah, I love Herzog. That's why I was like, I'll give him. The, I'll I'll see what he's going for here. And I understand it's it's a comedy. And uh, but the, I mean, I will say it, it was disappointing. I'm not saying it's a terrible movie. I'm just saying it's disappointing. And but I will say that the breakdancing soul moment is incredible. <laughs> <laughs> I have that to look forward to, I guess. I still haven't yeah. seen that. Well, awesome. Well, Ben, thanks for taking some time out of your uh, Saturday morning to join us here, and uh, we hope you can do it again in the future. Thanks for having me, man. Awesome, man. Well, we'll talk to you soon. In the meantime, we'll uh, be right back and do a little DVD picks. Uh, let's listen to a little bit of that Bowie. Uh, this is Cat People from Inglorious Bastards. Good stuff on the Corey's Picks. here on 90.7 The Capstone. This is the Movie Talk Show. I'm Ben Flanagan. Corey Crafts on the other side, and it's time for Craft Services. Oh, boy. Well, I'm tempted just to tell everybody to not worry about uh, renting DVDs or Blu-rays this week and just watch the uh, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World trailer, uh, which is now online. I still haven't seen that. Oh, it's it's totally awesome. Can't wait. Yeah. Just uh, just uh, don't even bother with DVDs. Just watch that trailer over and over again. You'll get all your entertainment. Uh, but if I had to recommend three Blu-rays or DVDs, this is not a bad week to do that. You can catch... Wes Anderson's wonderful, fantastic Mr. Fox, one of my favorite movies of the year, uh, now on DVD and Blu-ray. Um, a wonderful stop-motion, uh, just great, great film, uh, heavily detailed, so you want to see it in the highest definition possible. Um, next, uh, surprise Best Picture nominee and Best Actress winner, Sandra Bullock, stars in uh, The Blind Side. Uh, which is a better-than-I-expected football drama uh, from director John Lee Hancock, who's pretty good about uh, mixing reasonable sentimentality in his sports movies. Uh, I, I, I think The Blind Side is, is, is pretty good. I think it's a good film. It's not bad. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's harmless mainstream fare. Um, it's not going to hurt you to watch it. It's not awful, like everybody says, just because it got nominated right. for Best Picture. It shouldn't have been nominated, perhaps. I understand why it was, but I also understand why it's made $240 million domestically yeah. uh, and more. It's a good picture. Yeah. Um, next, uh, check out Jim Sheridan's Brothers. It features one of the best performances of the year with Tobey Maguire, two uh, pretty good performances from Jake Gyllenhaal and Natalie Portman. Um, 
And um, if you're into the whole television thing, Mad Men Season 3 is out now, um, which is better than just about any movie that came out last year. So uh, give that a shot if you haven't. Awesome. Time for the BF Double Dose. Uh, how about the two DVDs I just got back from Netflix, uh, which tends to put everything on long wait or very long wait. I can't believe they actually sent me Fantastic Mr. Fox, which I'm in the middle of right now. And I have to say that I am like amazed by it so far it's pretty amazing um i really am and just to put it simply i'm amazed by what wes anderson has been able to pull off in the first half hour of the movie so i can't wait to finish that um but i have not seen the following two yet uh but let's see why don't we all watch them and report back i got peter weir's the year of living dangerously from 1982 and that stars mel gibson and oscar winner linda hunt she won best supporting actress that year and also uh what the hangover barely edged out for best comedy at the golden globes this past <laughs> year uh last year's downloading nancy starring maria bello jason patrick and rufus Sewell. were you able to catch that yeah i've seen that one yeah it's hilarious rough. uh no it's it's um it's a hard movie to watch. I enjoyed it, but it's a hard movie to watch. I can't wait. Uh, let's give you a few announcements. Opening at the Cobb Hollywood 16 in Tuscaloosa this week, DreamWorks How to Train Your Dragon in 3D, and you can still catch it in 2D as well, which I prefer, actually. And uh, Tuscaloosa uh, native Leslie Hallman, a graduate of Northridge High School, and a friend of mine actually worked on that movie. Yeah. Um, so keep an eye on that one. And Hot Tub Time Machine, starring John Cusack, Craig Robinson and Rob Corddry, who I can't wait to see in this movie. I really want to go see this. Yeah, I hope they finally let Rob Corddry be himself in a movie uh, instead of just kind of putting him on this leash and to play the obligatory best friend in these mainstream movies. But either way, that's what's out in theaters. Now, uh, for just a couple more announcements. For the last week, we are holding a contest where you, the listener, can name our show. Of course, uh, we'd like to keep it film or conversation friendly, though there are several words we will not allow, those being movie, film, screen, cinema, or real. But at this point, we're pretty lenient. So email us at 90.7movies at gmail.com with your suggestions. The winner will be announced on the subsequent episode once we've chosen our title. By next week, we promise... We'll have named this thing, so bear with us. If you have any feedback, once again, you can email us at 90.7movies at gmail.com. If you feel we've missed something or you have any suggestions as to films we can review or topics we can discuss, please do email us. You can also follow us on Twitter at uh, 907movies, that's 90.7 without the point, or twitter.com slash 907movies. We might even read a comment or two on the air, so keep them coming. Yeah, and we will podcast this and other episodes of the show, and you can get those on my blog, beenaround.tumblr.com. That's beenaround, B-E-N-A-R-O-U-N-D dot T-U-M-B-L-R dot com. Corey and I also frequently write film-focused Facebook notes, so if that's your preference, there's that. And you can find Corey and my uh, our columns in Tusk Magazine found in each Friday edition of the Tuscaloosa News. And when you have the time, why don't you click over to filmnerds.com for several great podcasts hosted by our guest today, Matt Scalici, and featuring everyone you heard on the show today. The latest is a pretty thoughtful discussion on all things Jared Hess, and more specifically, his latest film, Gentleman Broncos, recently released on DVD. You can find that on filmnerds.com. And be sure to catch us next Saturday at 9 a.m. here on 90.7 FM, where our guest will be University of Alabama telecommunications and film graduate, 
and Los Angeles resident Ben Moorhead. He's going to join us. Moorhead actually worked with Christopher Nolan. He was Christopher Nolan's uh, assistant uh, during the Prestige production, and he was actually featured in the film. Um, I won't tell you which character it was because that character is the basis of uh, a spoiler, a big spoiler in that movie. Uh, but he also pitched in on Steven Spielberg's upcoming film, Tintin. Uh, so don't miss nice. that show next week. Yeah, And don't forget about next Saturday's big 90.7 benefit concert at the Mellow Mushroom with band Sparrow and the Ghost in The Last Great Fiction starting at 9 p.m. You will not want to miss that. That is next Saturday at the Mellow Mushroom. And for Corey Kraft... I am Ben Flanagan. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you tune in next week. Thank you so much for listening.